Okay, if you have your Bible, uh, turn to 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 7. That's the text that we're going to be looking at today. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 7. I'll go ahead and read that. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with, hum- with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So last week, uh, we went through verses 12 through 19, and in these passages we saw uh, Peter discuss the topic of committing our suffering to God as a way of suffering for his glory. Today we have this passage where Peter is now exhorting his readers about how elders should lead, also about how the younger should submit to the eldership, Uh, And then he gets into this topic about the necessity of being humble. And so I divided it in those three points. Uh, Point number one, and you'll see it on your handout, is shepherding the flock, which covers uh, the first four verses. The second point is the younger and what that means. You see that uh, (coughs) spoken of in verse five. And then the last point is humble yourselves which is the last two verses, verses 6 and 7. So let's go ahead and and look at the first point, which is shepherding the flock, verses 1 through 4. Now, beginning with verse 1, Peter starts with an exhortation, which uh, is an urge or a word of encouragement for the church. And we see that this exhortation is specifically for the elders. Now, I know that we often use the term elders But I think it's important to define this term for those who aren't quite familiar with what it means to be an elder. The word elders here is not speaking about older people, but rather the word is used as a name of an ecclesiastical office, a position of leadership within a particular group of Christians. The term elder is directly related with the word shepherd, which we see in verse 2 and is used interchangeably with the word bishop, which is the same word as overseers, right? Which we see uh, in Acts 20, verse 28. I'll show you up here. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, or bishop, or elder, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the the scriptures uses the word elder, shepherd, overseer, synonymously. And this is an ecclesiastical office, a church position, a church office. 
The most common word is what we use commonly here, which is the word pastor, which, again, it, it has its root in the Latin form of the word shepherd. So, again, this is a synonymous with elder. Now, I don't want you to miss from this verse in Acts the reality that the gifting that qualifies an overseer or an elder is one that is given by the Holy Spirit. You see it there. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We see in Acts 20, 28, it says, uh, Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In, in other words, you may know someone who may be very knowledgeable in theology, and they may be very knowledgeable in the Bible. He may be an expert in speech. He has probably had an education uh, at a theological school. But it is only the Holy Spirit who can gift a man in such a way that makes him qualified as an overseer. Now, going back to our main text uh, in Peter, Peter begins here by speaking specifically to the already ordained pastors or, or elders in that community. And notice that Peter isn't saying elder in the singular sense, right? He's not saying, you know, hey, elder, or you, elder. He's saying elders in the plural sense. And this is an indication that it was usual for a church to have a plurality of elders, more than one pastor. We see that through scriptures. Uh, Acts 14.23, which says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed to them, to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see, again, elders with an S. Another verse, 1 Timothy 5.17, it says, Let the elders, <clears throat> plural, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there's a plurality of elders. That was what you would see commonly in, in Scripture. Now, there's a lot that can be said about that. However, I, I at least want to mention that besides the biblical support that we find in Scripture of having a plurality of elders, there are also great practical advantages of following this biblical model of having a plurality of elders. The most important one I'd say is that when you consider the weighty task that's appointed to elders by God, which is to oversee and feed the flock, it's a task that is very heavy for a single pastor to bear. And this is why it's important to, to follow that model, where we have more than one pastor, more than one elder in a church. Now going back to the text, Peter exhorts the elders and he does so with multiple motivations. Okay, look back to uh, 1 Peter 5. In verse 1, we see that his first motiv motivation to exhort them is the fact that he himself is an elder. So he's, he's, he's about to give them an exhortation, but he's, he has multiple motivations. And his first one is, hey, you know, I'm also an elder. Peter was an overseer in Jerusalem and was giving his readers an exhortation, not as someone who had no experience in shepherding, but rather he spoke as one who shared the task with those whom he's addressing. Now we see his second motivation, which we find when Peter says that he himself was a witness of Christ's sufferings. 
So here, he isn't primarily affirming his apostleship, right, as one who's qualified by eyewitness. But he's being intentional in referring to Christ's sufferings to make a connection with his reader. Uh, because the, the people that he was addressing, they themselves were facing persecution and suffering. And so he was speaking to them and saying, look, I, I'm about to exhort you, give you some, some word on uh, what you ought to do, but I'm doing it with the motivation that I also uh, witness the sufferings of Christ and, and I can identify with your sufferings as well. So Peter was speaking to a suffering and persecuted church and this exhortation qualified him by being an eyewitness of Christ's suffering. And thirdly, the third motivation that you see there in the beginning of First uh, Peter 5 was that Peter was motivated by anticipation for the future glory to come. Uh, you see that when he says as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he's, he's about to say something to them, but he's motivated by the fact that he, he himself is a partaker with them in the glory that is, is, is going to be revealed. So Peter is, is, is motivated by a future glory that is to be expected for elders as well, the, as, well as all the other Christians that make up, make up the church. Now, with with all that said, what is the exhortation that he is about to give? We see it in verse 2. This is his exhortation. This is his command. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He's talking to elders, and, and, and with all that motivation, his point that he's trying to drive is to tell the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. This is the exhortation. And the exhortation stems from Peter's desire to see the church fulfill what Christ had commanded Peter himself. Um, I I don't know if you remember uh, when Peter and Christ had that conversation, that dialogue about, uh, you know, when when Jesus asked him, do you love me, Peter? Then feed my, my sheep, feed the flock. Let's look at that verse. John 21, 15 through 17. Can someone read that? So in this dialogue with Jesus, Peter was told to tend and feed the sheep. And in the same manner, Peter is telling the elders to do the same. Because this is the will of Christ for all sheep. That they would be tended and cared for. But you'll also notice that the primary way of shepherding the flock is through feeding them. Which is the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. Matthew 4.4, 4, I don't have it up there, but Matthew 4.4 4 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So teaching God's word is a qualification 
necessary for the office of eldership. You have to be able to teach. We'll see that. It's, it's one of the qualifications. Look at uh, 1 Timothy 3.2, which says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. <coughs> Titus 1.9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So again, the primary way in which the elder or overseer or pastor is to shepherd his flock is through the teaching and preaching of God's word. And I want to show you an example in scripture where the elders had to free themselves up from other things that they were involved with and delegate those tasks so that they can focus primarily on this task that was given to them in their office, which is to, to focus on preaching the word and feeding the flock. You'll see that in Acts 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. Can someone read that? Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned a full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... <clears throat> Thank you. So here we see the elders summoning seven men, which would, we would see uh, take up the role of being a deacon, right, to serve the practical needs of the church, while they devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They knew that their main job was feeding the flock, and it was done this way, and they, they couldn't neglect that as a priority. And although there are many other things that elders do, this passage is important because often church members want to assume that the pastor are to be men of many hats. And it can be dangerous to expect your pastor to take on roles that not even the Bible has called them to do. This can be dangerous not only for pastors themselves, but for the flock also, since our spiritual care has been placed in their hands. We should be careful not to place these overwhelming expectations on our pastors. Honor them by giving them the space that they need for them to dedicate themselves to the, the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, uh, continuing with verse 2, back in our main text, uh, Peter goes on by exhorting the elders in which manner they ought to shepherd. Let's look at that, First Peter 5.2. This is the manner that they ought to shepherd. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So, first of all, <clears throat> Peter is saying that elders should not shepherd under compulsion, which means that the task should not be done dragging your feet grudgingly. Right? This is... This is a task that they should do, and they should be doing it willingly. And it should be something that uh, they do with a heart that desires to see the growth of the church. 
feeding the flock, the maturity of the, of, of the sheep. And it shouldn't be a task like, you know, when you go to work in the morning and you, you're just, you know you got to do it, but you don't feel like being there that morning. Look at the attitude of Paul in Romans 1. Can someone read Romans 1, 15 through 16? So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yeah. So this is the attitude of Paul. I am eager to preach the gospel to you. That's his, that's his heart attitude. Now, I'm not a pastor, but I can only imagine that the job of shepherding is a very difficult one. And it's easy for someone on the outside to expect pastors to always be cheerful uh, in their serving. So we, we must be understanding as laymen. We ourselves ought to contribute in making the task easier for them. However, Peter still exhorts pastors to obey this, right? This is a command. This is a heart issue. To shepherd, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you. Now the verse goes on as Peter then exhorts elders to shepherd in a manner that is not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Uh, Some versions say, not for dishonest gain. Now, this idea of a pastor who uses his position for dishonest gain isn't really foreign to us here, especially in the States. It's not too hard to find false teachers motivated by money and wealth. They are what you often see in the television screen and some, some popular books that you see in the bookstores that are labeled under Christianity. And scripture warns us about false teachers who are motivated by their greed. 2 Peter 2, 1-3 through 3 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who, will secretly, who would secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, is that up there? Yeah. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. You see the the motivation, again, is greed. Now, it's clear in Scripture that churches should pay their shepherd. In fact, I would go on to say that they should pay them well. We see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 7, which says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends the flock without getting some of the milk? Also, 1 Timothy five seventeen and 18 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, The term muzzle the ox is, is an expression related to treading out grain, and the ox was used for that purpose. However, if the ox was muzzled, 
which means that his snout was covered, the ox would be laboring, but he would not be able to eat from the ground when it was necessary. And it's clear from this text that one of the ways in which we honor our shepherds is by paying them and paying them well. This removes the financial burden on the pastors and frees them up to focus their attention on what they were called to do, which is, the, which is prayer and the ministry of the word. That's why our giving is vital. Not only for the ministry as if we're giving to some company, it's for our own sake. We must never muzzle the ox. Now, Peter is calling pastors to do the job eagerly, as we see in uh, the end of verse 2. This is the opposite of a compulsive or shameful motivation. Pastors should desire to serve for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Now, moving on to verses 3 and 4, Peter says this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. One of the most fearful things in the world is to be under an abusive shepherd or an abusive headship for that matter. This is true for the submissive wife, for example, who has to deal with a husband who is verbally abusive and oppressive. This is true for the employee who suffers under a tyrannical manager who threatens his or her employment every time and uses fear to get what they want. This can be true with the relationship between pastors and members. However, there's something uniquely horrifying about this kind of thing taking place in the church. Consider the fact that the Bible always speaks to the soul of a man. Think about that. What is taught and how it's taught affects the soul and it shapes the heart. So when it comes to handling the word of God, the minister of the word is binding the minds and the hearts of the people with what they assume is God's will for them, which in in effect shapes their very being and informs what they would assume to be God's will for them. So when the pastor is up here preaching or teaching or me or anyone who's sharing the word, you're binding the consciences, you're shaping the hearts of men. You're telling people what the will of God is. What happens when that gets abused? When this is abused, it results in serious spiritual, and you know what I would say, serious psychological damage. I have spoken to some of you personally who have come from abusive situations And I could seriously see not only the spiritual damage, but I can actually see the psychological damage that it has caused you. In an abusive situation, the pastor would claim to stand on the authority of Scripture and use it to manipulate his flock as a tool for domineering those over or over those who he has charge of. In other words, the Bible in the hands of the wrong kind of person is one of the most dangerous things. Um, that can happen. And Peter is saying to pastors, do not shepherd them in a domineering fashion. Feed the flock with the pure word and trust in the Spirit's work to do the convicting and the heart shaping. Do not trust in your own methods. 
Your methods are always abusive. Trust in God's appointed methods if you want to see your church mature. Now, Peter goes on to say that instead, shepherds ought to be examples to the flock. Personally, I'm thankful for the elders that God has given our church. Um, Their faithfulness to the word of God and their love for the sheep has been a great example to me. And to see them get excited over the word and, and excited to shepherd has shown me that they truly rely on God's appointed means of grace for the church and not their own abilities. However, we ought to continue to pray for our pastors. Verse 4, Peter talks about the hope that is ahead for those who faithfully shepherd their flock. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice the term chief shepherd. (coughs) Peter's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see uh, in other passages, Jesus being called the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. Uh, I'll show you some passages. Can someone read John 10, 11? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Amen. Someone read Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Thank you. So it's obvious that Peter refers to Jesus as the chief shepherd, which indicates that all other shepherds are just under shepherds. That's what they are. Pastors, shepherds, overseers, bishops, whatever you want to call them, they are appointed to a local church in order to direct the flock of God to the chief shepherd. That's their job. In other words, a good pastor is one who leads his flock under the direction of the chief shepherd, who is Christ. And Peter says that when the chief shepherd appears, namely in his second coming, they will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. And most commentators would agree that the crown of glory is is basically another way of saying eternal life. Right? It's not describing a type of crown like, ooh, they get a cool crown and I get a lesser (laughs) crown. Uh, although I do believe in, in rewards. But I think, um, you know, he's using the term crown as synonymous with reward. Uh, and it's described as one that doesn't fade away, an eternal reward. Now, let's, go, let's get to our second point in the handout. Uh, the second point is the younger, right? We see that in verse 5. Let's read First uh, Peter 5, 5. Can someone read that? Thank you. So here, our attention is shifted from an exhortation to elders, and now it's being shifted to believers who are younger. Now, when you read this, it might tempt you to look at it like he's first talking to older people, right, when he says elder, and now he says younger, so he's speaking to younger people. So he's just addressing people of different ages, and and I don't think that's the case. Uh, especially when, uh, because he's 
connecting elder, that word, with shepherding, right? He's exhorting, exhorting them to shepherd in, in the right way. So uh, he, he's first talking about the office of eldership, and now he's talking to those who are younger, right? He uses the word younger, possibly, I mean, I I'm not 100% on this, but possibly as a way to show distinction from, you know, the two. You have your shepherds, you have your pastors of the church, and then you have the younger um, which, which might, might be just lay people. Uh, or he might be speaking to people younger in age. Um, but but it, it, what he says to them still works either way. Uh, he says here, uh, he says here, uh, submit, uh, subject, or be subject, rather, to the elders. That's what he's calling, calling them to do. Submit to your elders, in other words. So there should be a submission from church members, lay people, towards the eldership, the pastors. And Peter's purpose is not to encourage obedience from his church to the elders, no matter what they say to you, right? He's not saying, you know, regardless of what the leaders are telling you to do, submit to them anyway, even if it's contrary to the word of God. That's, that's not what, what he's saying. Um, nevertheless, Peter is commanding the younger to submit to the eldership. And this idea of submission is consistent with what he's been talking about before in, in the same letter. Right? We've seen in previous verses that Peter understood submission as being the responsibility of believers towards any authority. Right? And we read in 1 Peter 2.13, he says, be subject to every human institution, which uh, he also included government authorities as well. So how much more towards the uh, elders and the leaders that God has appointed to watch over you spiritually? Right? He's, he's saying you ought to submit to them as well. So what does this mean practically? Uh, what does it mean for us to submit to the elders practically. Well, practically speaking, this would mean that as laymen, we should not be resisting the initiatives of our elders in the church, nor should we be complaining about the direction uh, of the church, right? Sometimes we have our ideas and we think that the elders or the pastors, you know, they, 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 they're not with what we think the church ought to look like and you know, we have all these ideas that we think would make the church better. And of course, it, it, it needs to be considered if it's, if it's a matter of Scripture, right? If it's something that, may be, that we may be doing that's contrary to what the Bible is calling us to do, of course. But for the most part, we, we shouldn't be or we shouldn't have the attitude um, that looks at the way things are running and, and be contrary at heart with the direction that our elders are choosing to move uh, in our church. Submission to our elders is to be loyal, to be supportive, and to speak well of our elders. It's to pray for our elders. It's also to pursue like-mindedness with our elders. You know, there's a way that you can be part of a church and agree with its doctrine and, and doctrinal statements and its position on this and its position on that. But you can have a mind and a heart that is constantly contra con contrary to what 
uh, the elders want to do and what they, they feel they want to do. You can, you can willingly be um, uh, indifferent in everything that they say and, and in, every, in every way that they think. And if we are to pursue unity and be submissive to our elders, it's to pursue like-mindedness with our elders. It's to show respect to our elders and to seek wisdom from them. Now, I know they're just men, but by, um, by the fact that God has appointed them and qualified them to be men that care for our souls, we ought to show that respect and, and submit to them, especially uh, since we see that command in First Peter. I love what it says in Hebrews 13, 17. Can someone read that? Yeah, amen. And, and there's, there's many ways that um, we, we can make this really hard for them. <laughs> and, and it's not to say that their work shouldn't be work and their, their labor shouldn't be labor, um, but there's ways that the church, us individually and corporately, we can unnecessarily uh, make it hard for them because of our lack of wisdom, uh, because we don't um, maybe appreciate that they labor in the text, that they study, that they, they, they live their lives fully to shepherd the flock. And, and just as, as we do church with them, uh, we should just consider these things, remember these things, that they, uh, they watch over our souls, they've been appointed to do so, and we should let them do this with joy and not with groaning. And notice how... Uh, the author of Hebrews is placing that responsibility on those that aren't elders, right? He's saying, let them do this with joy. He's telling you guys to, to let them, let the elders do this with joy. And so, uh, you know, let's, let's think on those things. Uh, now, going back to our main text, Peter goes on to say, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here he's quoting, or rather paraphrasing, uh, Proverbs 3.34. And it it seems like he just jumped subjects, right? He he was just talking about submitting to your elders, and now he's talking about uh, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. However, we see that it's very much related to this uh, command to submit to our elders. When it comes to submission... It would be an easy thing to do if only the church would adorn themselves with humility. When believers recognize that they're creatures, that they're sinners, that they're less apt to feel offended. And, and we offend each other all the time. Um, and we say things and we don't realize what we say. Um, and a lot of times the sin is, is not even on the offender. It's, it's on the person that's offended. Because the person that's so easily offended is a person that cares too much about their feelings, which, which is a sign of pride. I like what Tom Schreiner says in his commentary on this verse. He says, humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. So we must not let pride be the cause of our lack of submission. Pride often is the reason why people quit their job And because of their pride, they can't keep a job. 
Pride is often the reason why marriages end in divorce, simply because one of them can't humble themselves. Many relationships and friendships end due to reasons that at the end they can't even remember why they broke up or why they stopped being friends by the time the relationship ends, and it was all due to pride. The same thing can happen in the church. If pride is kept in the heart of church members or even leaders, it'll cause division instead of unity, rebellion instead of submission. That's why we're called to be humble. Let's look at point number three. Uh, Point number three is humble yourselves. And... uh, This is uh, looking at verses 6 through 7. Can someone read that? Thank you. So uh, here we see Peter using the word therefore, right? Humble yourselves, therefore, which connects what he's saying in his previous statement. In other words, Peter's saying, since God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And this is a call for the church to recognize God's power. Uh, And in this context, Peter, he's writing to a church who's facing trials and persecution. So the point that Peter's trying to make here is that the church should not go against the sovereign hand of God, even when when God allows them to go through trials and tests. The church shouldn't disobey God's command to submit to their elders, uh, to keep the order that God has established. Now, I would imagine that it, it would have been easy for them to begin to feel impatient with God and maybe impatient with their elders, maybe impatient with their church while they were going through these hard trials and and, and persecutions. And since Peter has exhorted them to submit to their elders, their lack of trust in God through these hard trials might have made them rebel against the guidance of their leadership. That might be what was going on. That's why he called them to submit to their elders and do so in, in humility. Again, if we trust in the Lord, he will in his proper time, exalt you. That's what it says there in the text. The the evidence of being impatient with God is usually the lack of submission and and humility. These are just signs of of not trusting in the Lord and being impatient. But again, uh, the word, uh, he says, if we trust in the Lord, he will in his proper time exalt you. The word exalt used here is not exalt you in a self-glorifying manner, it simply means that, that you're called to trust God during your trials, submit to the, the regulations that God has set, right? Submit to your elders, sit under the word, humble yourselves. And, and when he says in, in proper time he'll exalt you, it simply means that in due time, regardless of your trials, God will eventually lift those uh, trials from you or he, he will lift up those who are suffering either now or in the, in the age to come. But he will do that in, in, in proper time. It's a call for the church to trust in, in what God has commanded. 
And verse 7 goes on by saying, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Interestingly, Peter moves from the topic of humility versus pride, right? And he now talks about anxiety. This is important. Seeing the connection with the two topics, right? Humility and pride and anxiety. Seeing the connection is very important. It's important because it shows that giving into worry or anxiety is an example of pride. So the logical relationship between pride and anxiety is that the way the believer ought to humble himself is by casting their worries to God, right? The way that you're called to be humble is, is not, uh, you know, throwing dirt on yourself and, you know, crying and, you know, becoming weak, but becoming weak in spirit, or I would say a better term would be to empty yourself and give your worries to God, trusting in God. Again, the logical relationship between pride and anxiety is the way that the believer ought to humble himself. He ought to do so by casting their worries on God. Now, conversely, if believers were to do the opposite, to continue to worry, then they are caving into pride. Why is it considered pride to worry? It's pride in the sense that you're lacking faith. Worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are, conv- they are convinced that they themselves must solve all the problems in their lives by their own strength. Therefore, the God that they're trusting is the God that they're trusting in is themselves, essentially. On the contrary, when believers throw or cast their anxieties to God, they express their trust in His mighty hand. And this is why Peter says, "Humble yourselves." Therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He's calling them to humble, and humble themselves, and you do this by casting your anxieties on God. Now, this is easier said than done. I, I, you know, I, I think we all struggle with uh, worry. Um, but it, it, it's good to know where to place that, in what category. Um, and if you, if you have worry and anxiety placed in the category of, well, I got to do more to fix this, um, then, then you have it in the wrong category. If you place it under sin, uh, not trusting in God, then it'll help you fix this issue. Um, remember that when you're anxious, when you're worried, um, you're called to, to cast these anxieties to God. And, and we have to obey to that. Um, we, we have to listen to what Peter is saying. If we cast these anxieties, we put away our pride, this idea that we can solve these issues ourselves and and trust in the mighty hand of God. Verse 7 ends with the words, He cares for you. This is something that I often forget. We often forget, maybe. This this sentence there, this this phrase here, He cares for you. This is amazing (coughs) truth. God cares for his people. In Christ, God sees his people like he sees his son. We're united to him. And as a, as a father, myself, I'm a father, I know how much I love my son. I know how much I love my daughter. Uh, and how much more does God 
or the God of love love his own son? How much more does the God of love love his own son? And in this case, loves us with the same love. It's easy to think about God only theologically or, you know, we, we think about the category, like the attributes of God. We think of him theologically. But it's, it's, it's very common to overlook the reality of the perfect love that God has for us. He loves us so much that he commands us to cast all our cares on him. What friend do you know has said, you know, I love you, man. Uh, cast all your cares on me. Uh, I don't know a friend like that. I don't know if I can be a friend that way. Um, Yet God loves us and tells us to cast all our anxieties on him. We see that humility is a big theme in these verses that we discussed today. And humility is needed in the call for eldership, right? As we, as we spoke of earlier. Uh, so that they would do so and they would be shepherds, not by compulsion, but willingly. Humility is needed for the church to be submissive to their elders. And humility is needed when pride causes us to worry and to be anxious when instead we should trust in God's mighty hand and cast our worries on him because he cares for us. And this was what he was telling to his people, Peter, uh, in, in the context of where his, his church was being persecuted. They were facing many trials. And, and his word to them was to trust, trust in God. Put away your pride. Um, and so I, th- I think we, we ought to take that same message um, to us and, and apply it to, to us in, in the area of shepherding, in the area of, of being a church member, um, and, and in the area of, of our anxiety and our worries. We ought to trust God. Now, this concludes the study for today. Any, any questions or thoughts on anything that I've said today? Yep. I think it's well to be considered that by <coughs> casting our cares, we don't take them back. That's right. Good point. It's easy to just lay it out and then pick it right back up and walk out with it. Yep. Something that I've experienced with what you just said is um, I will often take it back. Mm. So what I do is I keep giving it to God. Mm. Because I think for everyone sure. we'll have the tendency to take it back. Absolutely. You're so talking to the right man. And he's patient with us and Amen. so we keep giving it to him. That's right. Yeah. Good point. Anyone else? Nobody back there? We're good. Yep. Yeah, it's a good reminder. Uh, 
I, I need that reminder constantly. Yep, did someone have their hand up here? Okay, thought I saw a hand. Any other thoughts? Lloyd? Amen. Yeah, and that's, that's pretty clear in Scripture. Um, you know, they're in charge of a certain group of people, and that's, that's who they ought to focus on. You know? Any other thoughts? If not, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your exaltation in these passages. We, we thank you for um, exhorting uh, your commands, exhorting um, these things to the church that you did there at First Peter. We pray that our elders here in our church would continue to lead in love and in humility, that we as church members would submit to them, and that we would trust in your mighty hand, especially during trials, and that we would be a church that would be humble enough to cast our cares upon you. Knowing this great truth, Lord, that you love and you care for us. And this is amazing truth, because we were once uh, sinners who were not acceptable in your sight, and rightly so, but by virtue of Christ, you are our Father. We thank you that you love us and you care for us, and, and we can cast our cares upon you. Father, we need your spirit for that task. We can't do it ourselves. Like our sister said, uh, we, we might have to come over and over again to do this. Um, or we're weak, Lord, but by your spirit, you can help us. And we ask you that you would um, help us in this task, Lord, to, to be humble enough to submit, um, but also to cast our cares upon you. Therefore, we ask for your spirit's help we do this, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys.